I did get a really meaningful video the other day from a friend, and the video is called A Forest Man. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a short film, actually. It's, it's like 15, 16 minutes long. And uh, it's about uh, this guy who planted trees. And he planted trees in the place he lived. And he lived uh, on a river island. And the river island is called Majuli. Say Majuli. Majuli is a river island amidst the river of the, try to say this right, the Brahmaputra River in India. Okay. And uh, what's going on with Majuli is that it is eroding. And it's eroding because the river is rising. This man who lives on Majuli, uh, he has uh, made it his mission to take this barren place on the island to reforest it. He's been doing it for about 40 years, and he has seen what was once a a barren wasteland uh, turn into a forest the size of Central Park. And so he wakes up every day, this man without a lot of money, doing these, with doing these tasks that aren't very complex. He does not have a superior education, and he wakes up every day and does the same thing. He plants saplings. And as he's done this, this forest has developed, and these native plants have returned. These birds have come back to the forest, they haven't been there for a very long time. He's got uh, elephants and rhinos and tigers now living in the forest. There's a lot of ecological takeaways, and that's not even what the filmmaker necessarily is pushing on you, but the takeaway that I was struck by was just how normal this guy was. I was also struck by how extraordinary the results were. And all of this was because he had a vision. He had a vision of what this place could look like. Sure, it was eroding. Sure, its future looked bleak. But he had hope of something better. I don't know about you, but things in our world are clearly broken. Seen this week, Afghanistan's a mess. COVID rages. The opioid epidemic is getting worse, not better. The wealth gap between the rich and the poor widens in our country. Our sexualized culture is making women commodities and men addicts. I mean, I could go on and on, and you could too. There might be things you'd love to add to the list, and I'm probably with you. But if Majuli is eroding because of the rise of the Brahmaputra River, it seems like our world is eroding because of the rise of evil. It's hard to have much hope. It's hard to have much vision when this is what we wake up and see every day. But we're Christians. We believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, which means that we think that life could come out of death. We believe that Jesus' resurrection is the first sad thing to become untrue. And the power of the Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead exists in the world today. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that evil is going to be eradicated in the here and now. That's not going to happen until Jesus' return. But we do know that life is possible, which means that hope is appropriate. Yes, even commanded. So here's our church's hope of a better world. It's spelled out in our vision statement. It says this. For all souls in and around downtown Lexington to flourish in a community that's rooted in Jesus Christ, that's compelled by his gospel, and that strives for a more beautiful and just city. 
Now, we talked about our mission last week, to bring the personal work of Jesus Christ to bear in our lives and in our community. These are our marching orders. This is what we wake up and live out every day. And our vision is just what we hope to see if we live out our mission. And wouldn't it be amazing to see that? To see people flourish instead of waste away. To see people in community instead of isolated. To see people compelled by something solid like the gospel instead of something hollow like political ideology. To see people strive for a beautiful and just city instead of the American dream of individual happiness and success. I I know this sounds crazy, but so does the forest man. How's this going to happen? How's this wild hair vision going to come to pass? I'm glad you asked. Because that's what we see in Jeremiah 29. Let's read verses 4 to 7 together. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prosper, you too will prosper. The word of the Lord. Here's Jeremiah's context. Jeremiah's in the Old Testament. Jeremiah is one of the major prophets. It's one of the longer books in the Bible. And Jeremiah's objective is to help these exiles live faithfully and hopefully in the context in which they live. And now they live in Babylon, and they lived in Babylon for 70 years. They lived there from 609 before Christ to 539 before Christ. And the way that this exile came about was that the Babylonians, they laid Jerusalem under siege so that nothing new could get inside the city. Because they're trying to force surrender from Israel, force surrender from Jerusalem, because no food could get in and they were starving. And eventually the Jews, they caved. So the Babylonians came in. They took their king, killed him. They tore down the wall. They burned the temple. They burned the palace. They burned, they took down every house in Jerusalem. And then they took the people and they carted them off into captivity in Babylon. When they carted them off into captivity into Babylon, they wanted to integrate them into society. And this is where the Babylonians were masters. They were way ahead of their time. Because usually, either the people were killed, or they were carried off to be slaves, or they were quartered off, kind of quarantined in their own section within Babylon. But that's not what the Babylonians did. Because if you did that to a people, guess what might happen? Not guaranteed, but guess what might happen if that's what you did to those people? Whether you quarantined them, or whether you made them slaves, they'd get angry, and they'd rise up against you and cause a revolt. No, 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 this is not what Babylon did. Instead, they wanted to assimilate them fully into their society. So they gave the Jews access to their education, access to the marketplace, access to their religion. Because if they did that, after two generations, all the cultural distinctives, all the religious distinctives of being the people of God will have been swallowed up by Babylonian culture. So this is who Jeremiah is talking to. This is what he's dealing with. And so what is he going to tell these people to do? 
Well, I don't know if you noticed, but if you look back at verses 4 to 6, you see this string of incredibly ordinary tasks. It doesn't sound very exciting. What would be exciting for, for Jeremiah to come to these people with is, hey, let's, let's have a revolt. They'd probably get excited about that. Hey, let's convert all these Babylonians. It's exciting. But that's not it. It's these ordinary tasks. The first one is build houses and live in them. Yeah, building a house has something to do with providing shelter for them. But then it says live in them. Live in them has this principle not of, of, of owning your own house. It's not imperative to be a homeowner. The principle of living in the house that you have built. The principle is a commitment to place. It's a commitment to resist the temptation to be perpetually mobile. Robert Putnam, a sociologist, he's got a killer TED talk if you're really interested. But Robert Putnam's this sociologist, and he's written this, this famous book called Bowling Alone. Anybody ever bowled alone? If you have, I'm really sorry. I mean, it sounds terrible, doesn't it? But in his research, he details how Americans have disengaged from in-person civic involvement. And civic involvement, he includes really anything that you do out in public, not just serving in the government. He's even talking civic involvement includes going to church. So he talks about why Americans have done this. And one of the reasons he finds is that it's mobility. He writes this. This is what he found. Nearly one in five of us move each year. More than two in five of us expect to move in the next five years. And accordingly, people who move expect to move in the next five years that they're 20 to 25 percent less likely to attend church, attend club meetings, volunteer, or work on community projects than those who expect to stay put. And that's what committing to a place means. It means staying put. And committing to a place as a Christian means that you own the lostness of your geography. I mean, you saw the geography in our statement, didn't you? It says we long to see all souls in and around downtown. That lostness, that brokenness is what we want to see restored but in order to own it, many of you have felt the call to move. And now 80% of our church lives inside New Circle Road. And two-thirds of our church lives on the east side of inside New Circle Road. Two-thirds of our church lives in Kenwick and Castlewood and downtown and campus and Chevy Chase. And what this does is that it opens up opportunities. It opens up opportunities for mission. Because now you've got these overlapping relationships. So now with, it, with people in our church... You're now in tandem as you pray for the lost, your lost neighbors. You're in tandem with other people in our church as you pray and build relationships. It's also good for community. It makes hanging out a lot easier when you can just walk to someone's house. So place is important. Build houses and live in them. Live in them. The second really ordinary thing, it says plant gardens and eat their produce. Uh, now, I know urban gardening is all in vogue. I've got raised beds myself. Jenna's the one who does all the work. Um, I, all, my only job is I get a scoop of compost at the beginning of the year at Landscaper's Corner. That's all I do. Jenna does the rest, and then I eat everything. Um, I know they're all in vogue, but when this talks about plant gardens and eat their produce, it's really just a metaphor for work. 
it harkens back to the creation narrative. And in the creation narrative, you see this verse. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. The garden of Eden to work it and keep it. See, you as a human being were made to work. Adam and Eve worked not as, as a result of the fall. They worked when things were perfect. Now, I know that you feel exhaustion by the time you get to Friday. I do, too. I, there's nothing I want to do more when I get home today than take a nap. So work now is exhausting. But that's because of the fall. You might be bored. You might lack purpose. But Adam and Eve, when they, before they sinned and they went to bed, they found their day at work perfectly contenting. So I don't know what your view of the good life is, but if it doesn't include work, then you've got a skewed view of how you're made. See, here's what God has done. He's given us each this postage stamp sized piece of his creation. And we are to tend and to keep it. And just like Adam and Eve, this postage sized postage stamp size piece of creation, where to bring out all the potentialities latent in our garden through our work. But what might that look like? Well, th think about your job. If, if you're in business, you don't need to quit your job and work for a church in order to do gospel work. If you're a doctor, you don't need to quit your job and go do medical missions to do gospel work. However, if you're in business, you might want to ask these kinds of questions. How does the product I'm offering benefit the welfare of humanity? Well, if I'm in business, what's the role of profits in my business? Will my particular business wrongfully take advantage of the marginalized or the environment? Those are the kind of questions you've got to ask if you want to do gospel work and be in business. Or, or take the medical professional. Here's some questions for you. How do you offer care that gets to the deeper causes and not just treat symptoms? Even if that care is not easy, desired, efficient, or cost-effective. Another question of how to tend and keep your garden as a medical professional. How do you treat patients not as problems to be fixed, but as image bearers of God. To the medical professional, you need to ask the question, are you in this profession because of the financial security that it provides, or because you have a desire to serve those under your care? These are tough questions, aren't they? In some ways, it would be easy to go work for a church. It would be easier just to go do medical missions because you don't have to work through these in the same way. But see, we as a church, we need to view Mondays as important as Sundays. Because if our city is going to be beautiful and just, like our vision says, then work has got to be a part of that equation. So you see it. Tend and keep the garden. Build houses and live in them. The third one, did you see it? has to do with family. It says, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. 
See, this is what Jeremiah is holding up. He's holding up the importance of family. He's saying that marriage and parenting are of crucial value to what God is trying to do among them in exile. See, the most powerful way that they're to resist the assimilation of Babylon is to have children and pass the faith down to them so that they can pass it down to another generation. So you see it. You put these three things together, and Jeremiah has this all-encompassing view of life. Because if you really think about it, if you boil your life down, it's largely about these kind of mundane activities of committing to a place, of having a family, and of going to work. Now, I, I know that's not very motivating. And that's understandable, especially when you consider the environment in which we live. See, I would call most Americans visionaholics. Because we're constant targets. We're targets of marketing campaigns. They're trying to get us on board with various brands and causes and organizations. And then what the church does is it joins in this visionaholic spirit with calls to be radical, with calls to be extreme. Because that's what gets us excited. But it's also what gets you burnout. out. But what if we were a church? What if we were a church that prizes the ordinary activities of family life, of work, and commitment to place, and we did this over the long haul? What might happen? I think what might happen is what our vision calls for, that all souls in and around downtown Lexington would flourish in a community that's rooted in Jesus Christ, that's compelled by his gospel, and that strives for a more beautiful and just city. This is the end of our text. You see verse 7? Verse 7, there seems like there's a fourth thing added to these three. But I'll make the argument for something different. Look at it. But seek the welfare of the city, for I have sent you into exile and pray, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in, the wealth, in its welfare you will find your welfare. See, th- there is a way that you commit to place, that you do your work, You do family life, and it really is all about you. It's about your control, it's about your predictability, it's about your comfort. And if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense for Israel. They would want to live that way. They would want to withdraw and escape from the Babylonians because they've been immensely hurt by them. The Babylonians are dangerous. But that's not God's call through Jeremiah to his people. What God's calling them to do is commit to a place to go to work and do family in such a way that it benefits the Babylonians. See, God's essentially calling them to love their enemies. And it sounds impossible, especially when you consider what they've gone through and what the Babylonians have taken from them. But I think at this moment, when they heard verse 7, when God's people heard verse 7, they remembered that their captivity was not random. It's not like the Israelites just ran up against a supremely powerful empire that took advantage of them. That's not it. Their captivity was their fault. God told them back in 2 Kings 20 that they would go into captivity because they had begun to worship idols. See, they weren't just victims of Babylon. They were villains before a holy God. 
So in this command to seek the welfare of the city, there are echoes of grace. Do you hear them? It means that God hadn't utterly washed his hands of them. Because now he's empowering them to do something impossible. And so even though their city's pummeled, and now they're living in the city of the enemy, God's calling them to use their imagination to envision a city that's to come. Because they wouldn't live in Babylon forever. Eventually they would go back to Jerusalem, and there a king from David's line would reside among them once again. And he would reign not with an iron fist, but with a foot washing cloth. His life would be one of service, one that in the end would mean that he would die on a cross. But do you remember where that cross was? Hebrews 13 tells us it was outside the city. It was outside the city where he was king. But Jesus Christ chose to be banished from the city that was so that you and I could be included in the city that is to come. And that's what empowers us to live in the city we're in. See, you you and I, we can be angry, we can be fearful about the state of the world all you want. It hurts to live in our world because it's full of injustice. It's scary to live in our world because it harms us and our loved ones. But Christians, realize this. I know there's a certain impulse in you to hunker down in your family, to hunker down within our church in hopes that you won't be hurt. But we've got to resist that. We've got to resist that impulse and we've got to stand squarely in our city and seek its welfare by committing to place. By doing our work and doing family. Because one day, King Jesus is going to come to earth and he's going to bring a new city. The city that we read about in Revelation 21. It's a city that's from God. And it's a city that's beautiful. But until Jesus brings this new city, may we be a church that looks to do the mundane things of committing to place, of going to work and doing family over the long haul. So you see, you've got to see that seeking the welfare of the city is not the fourth thing we do. Seeking the welfare of the city is the way in which we do the first three. See, we we commit to place, not because we want stability and security. We do it for the city. We go to work not to get a paycheck, but to serve the city. We do family not in isolation from the city, but in the midst of the city where we teach our kids, yes, to be kind, yes, the importance of going to church, but we also teach them to serve the poor. We also teach them to pray for those who don't claim Christ. And this is the kind of vision that gets kids engaged. You see your marriage not as this mutually beneficial relationship, but you see it intensely through the lens of mission. And friends, if we do these ordinary tasks and we do them over the long haul, I really do believe we'll see something amazing happen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, (laughs) loving our enemy seems impossible, but when we see uh, that uh, you loved your enemies to the extent 
that you were cast out of the city, that you were the king without a crown. Oh, Lord, may we take that same posture of service moving forward. In Christ's name, amen.